Well, thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the guys here on staff. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about a comedian I like. His name is Nate Bargatze. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's actually pretty clean. Most funny comedians are not clean, and most clean comedians are not funny, but he's one of these exceptions, and he gives an incredible uh, illustration of one time that when he was going to Honduras, which he just learned was actually a country and not a city, and as he's getting ready to get on his plane, somebody says, hey, Nate, you need to keep in mind that when you're in Honduras, you have to be careful because there are a lot of venomous snakes. He's like, okay, and the guy says, now here's what you need to do. If one bites you, the best thing that you can do is to try to catch it so the doctors at the hospital will know what kind of snake bit you. And he's like, I don't know anything about snakes, but I'm pretty sure that's not right. That I've never caught a snake in my life, and now after one has bitten me, I have to get it together and catch a snake. He's just going to keep biting me. And the guy said, well, it doesn't matter. After you've been bitten once, it doesn't matter. And he goes, do you even know what a snake is? There's a huge difference between one bite and like 30 bites. Who gave you this idea? The snake? And so he's got this whole thing, and it's pretty funny. And the reason it's funny is because we all hear that advice, try to go catch a venomous snake, though you've never done that in your life, and you realize this is a terrible plan. This guy is saying that it's wise. This guy is saying that it's smart. But you realize pretty quickly, even if you know nothing about snakes, that's probably not what you should do. And the reason I mention that is because this text is going to continue talking about the difference of the way the world, meaning lost people, people that don't know Christ, the way the world views wisdom and the way God views wisdom. And the way the world views foolishness versus the way that God views foolishness. And we're going to see in this text that there's a lot of things that seem wise, like catching the snake. There's a lot of things that seem wise that when you think about him, you realize how foolish that actually is from a Christian worldview. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 18. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are good. We ask for your help. As we study kind of a a strange text in a point that seems that uh, we're kind of beating a dead horse, we pray that this, we wouldn't become numb to these truths, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Let's look at verse 18. He starts with this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Look at that first phrase, let no one deceive himself. Why does the Bible have to say that? Because we are not so much deceived by others as we are deceived by ourselves. That's why the Bible has to go out of its way to say, be careful that you're not thinking that what you think is wise is actually foolish. If your definition of wisdom is the same as the definition of lost people, as the lost, unbelieving world and culture around you, you have been deceived. The problem is not so much that we're deceived by others, it's that we deceive ourselves. We don't realize how to view the world Christianly versus viewing the world the way the world views the world, okay? And so the first thing out of the gate he's gonna say is do not deceive yourself. The Bible will tell you to trust the Bible, The Bible will tell you to trust the church. The Bible will tell you to trust others. The one person you're not allowed to trust is you. That there's there's a way, the Bible says, that seems right to a man that's end is the way of death. Or the heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust it? The one person you're not allowed to trust is the very person culture tells you to trust, which is you. Your thoughts, your experiences. That's the irony is that some of the people that think they're the most enlightened are ludicrous. 
Some of the people that think they're most awake or woke are actually the most asleep. They don't see things clearly. They see things poorly. And so the Bible's gonna have to say, don't let yourselves be deceived. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or someone who's certainly not a Christian, Niccolo Machiavelli in The Prince writes, men are so simple-minded that he who deceives will always find someone who will let himself be deceived. The Bible's gonna start by saying, wait a second, you're going to have to question yourself. You're going to have to question your presuppositions. I was riding in the car with one of uh, our elders, Dave Young, and he had a pretty hilarious joke. So we're riding down the, uh, the, the, riding down the road and there's a sign for an alert. You know how an amber alert is if a child goes missing or a silver alert is if someone who's more elderly goes missing. And so we're driving down the road and there's a silver alert and Dave turns to me and he goes, every time I see a silver alert, I think to myself, I wonder if that's me. Which I thought was a great joke. That's the idea. We can't trust ourselves. Don't let yourselves be deceived. Okay, so Paul's gonna start with that. Now here's what he's gonna say about this deception. He's gonna continue on. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You see that it's counterintuitive. You see this reversal of what's wise and foolish or in the immortal words of Socrates, mankind is made of two kinds of people. Wise people who know they're fools and fools who think they are wise, okay? Now, I especially want you to see this phrase here, wise in this age. If you've got your pen, I would underline that in your Bible. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, what he's trying to say is this. Let me put it in, uh, let, let me explain it how the, the Corinthians would have understood it, and then we'll bring it into today, okay? So in Corinth, what they're wanting to do, wisdom for them is self-exaltation. It's being great. To, be, uh, to, to pursue your own ends, to try to make a ton of money, to be a good speaker or rhetorician, to have a lot of honor, to have a lot of fame, that was worldly wisdom 2,000 years ago. And Paul's gonna say, you don't get to follow that wisdom of the age. Rather, Christianity says the opposite. Be humble, serve others, don't make your name great. If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. It says the opposite of the world. So what I wanna do is I wanna go over some ideas of wisdom of the world in our current age. And every one of these ideas I'm about to read to you is something that the cultural elites, the movers and shakers in our culture, the people who are somebodies think are good ideas. But as we read these ideas, we as Christians will realize these statements are insane. They're, they're psychotic. Our culture thinks they're genius. The people who have a say and have a voice in culture think that they're good ideas, but we see from a Christian worldview that it's simply the wisdom of the world, and we as Christians have to lay that aside so that we might truly be wise. So what I'm about to say also has nothing to do with politics. I'm not trying to win you over to conservatism. I'm trying to get you to think like a Christian. I wanna give you some ideas that seem wise in our age, and as I read them, I want you to think to yourself, is that really smart or is that really stupid? And you'll see what Paul is talking about by getting rid of the wisdom of this age. Let me give you a few. These are all ideas that our culture affirms. <clears throat> grown men should go into the bathroom with little girls as long as those grown men feel like women on the inside. That's something our culture, that, that's not, that Harvard professors hold that. Medical doctors hold that. And when we hear that as Christians, we think that is the dumbest idea I have ever heard because we have an enlightened mind. We don't think the way the world does, we think like Christians. Children should not be spanked because they naturally know what's best. I feel like anybody that holds that does not have kids, okay? 
We should defund the police so that there will be less violence. Doctors should not tell patients how to be healthy by losing weight because that is fat shaming. Notice what culture says. The problem there is the doctor who's trying to help the person, not the person who's committed the sin of gluttony. It's the doctor who needs to change here, not the patient. That's wisdom of the world. We should not question someone when they say they were harmed by someone else because nobody has ever falsely accused anyone. That's that accusation culture that we have. To be accused is to be guilty. And to our culture, that's so smart. It's so intelligent. It's what the elites, it's what the blue check marks on Twitter say, this is good. And we hear that as Christians and we think, is that really good? Why does the Bible talk about false accusation? Bodily sex is determined by personal feelings, not biology, but somehow that's still science. How about this one? We should re-segregate the schools. That's something being pushed for in our culture. I don't know if you knew that or not. Who do you think is pushing that? It's not the KKK, okay? Do you know who's pushing to resegregate schools? The political organization known as Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is not a phrase that means black people matter, okay? That would be okay. That's not what that means. Don't be naive. It is a political lobby group that makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year to push a particular agenda. And they say right now we should resegregate schools, the wisdom of the world. We don't need to prevent cartel activity or human trafficking by having normal borders just like every other nation on earth. And our culture says that's a good idea. To try to stop a child from being sold into sexual slavery is racism. And it's wisdom of our age. And our culture says, yes, yes, that's such a smart thing, Zach, you just said. But we read that as Christians and we say, wait a second, we have to protect people. We have to punish criminals. We we have to have law and order. A baby is not a different person than a baby is not a different person than its mother so you can kill it but remember we are still on the side of science. I have a bunch more. You cannot make me affirm your Christian beliefs but you should be canceled if you don't affirm my non-Christian beliefs. Our culture says that's a good idea. Listen to this one, some more wisdom of the world. COVID is so deadly that it should override every other concern, including freedom of religion, constitutional rights, mental health, the ability to see one's own family, social well-being, and the ability to work a job to put food on the table for your children. We did that. This happened in 2020. Listen to this one. Freedom of speech is oppressive. That seems wise to our age. In the same way that the people in Corinth would say, this is wisdom, and Paul says, no, the opposite of that is wisdom. Our culture, what's wise in this age, says, this is wisdom, and the Bible's gonna say, that's not wisdom. It is brave to act out your perverted desires, not to correct them. It sure is brave to do what you already want to do. We should view people in terms of race and past events instead of character and current events, is what our culture would say. Any money you've made from working hard is only because you have, by default, oppressed those who have less money. It is good to appear to be a caring person online, whether or not you actually sacrifice to help others. Are you actually having a homeless person in your house? No, but I put something on Facebook to raise awareness. Okay, so you want, you gain from that. That didn't cost you anything. You gain social capital. It's selfishness under the veneer of caring for others. Not all violent rioting is bad. It's only bad when my opponents do it. It's wisdom of the world. We should silence views that disagree with our own. Freedom of thought and freedom of speech are dangerous. I'll give you a few more. Book burning was bad when it was done by Catholics at the Inquisition, but it's good when Amazon does it today. Live your best life now. Seek revenge on all your oppressors now. Don't go through anything difficult. Build your kingdom. Grow your brand. Make much of self and get a blue check mark by your name on Twitter because that is what life is all about. Uh, is all about. 
Every one of these statements, our culture, the, the cultural elites, the movers and shakers say, this is wisdom. And when you just hear some of these phrases, you think, that doesn't seem wise. Why? Because you're thinking like a Christian. That's why Paul's gonna say, if you want to be a Christian, you have to turn away from what's wise in this age and embrace what the world thinks is foolish. Or to even quote the atheist, Voltaire, I have never made but one prayer to God, a very short one. Oh Lord, make my enemies ridiculous. And God granted it. And God has made the enemies of Christianity ridiculous, okay? So when this text is saying that we have to turn from the wisdom of this age and become fools, it doesn't mean that we literally become foolish. It's that we become foolish in the world's eyes, not in God's eyes, not actual foolishness. It's not like we stop studying and we stop learning and all these things the Bible actually commands us to do. It's that we have to look like fools from the world's perspective. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you are in some type of mental health care facility as a doctor. What used to be called an insane asylum, that term has fallen into disuse, obviously, but you are a doctor, a psychiatrist, in an insane asylum. And you know that you're sane, you're the doctor, you know that all the patients around you have some sort of mental illness, that they are crazy. But the patients think that they're actually the doctor, and they think they're actually sane, and you're the one who's lost their mind. That is exactly the analogy of what's going on in Paul's day and what's going on today. People who are actually wrong, who are actually foolish because they do not have regenerate minds, think of us, the Christians, the doctors that actually have truth, they think we're wrong. They think we're crazy. But we're actually the ones with truth. We're the psychiatrists. We actually know what's going on, so we see that they're crazy. But because there's more of them, we think, maybe I'm not right, but you are. So he's not saying, if you're smart, actually be dumb. He's saying, if culture agrees with all the views you hold, then you're probably not thinking like a Christian and you must become a fool in their eyes so that you might actually become wise. This is counterintuitive. This is extremely counterintuitive. So when I was a kid, we played a little game and maybe you've played this game. The floor is lava. Anyone played that game? Everybody's played that game. I don't know why it's always lava. It's not acid. It's not fire. But you play this game, the floor is lava. So you put down pillows and you put up chairs and you jump from pillows to chairs to couch and you try not to touch the floor because the floor is lava. Now, when I was a kid, I thought this is good training because at some point in my life, I'm going to encounter lava and I, I, I'm gonna know what to do. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but lava has not played a very big part in my life. I've never seen lava. I don't even know where you would go to find it. I'd be embarrassed to ask. I don't know, who do you ask for that? A doctor? I don't know, where's lava? I hadn't had to worry about it. The other thing I thought I had to worry about was quicksand. As a kid, I'd watch a show and someone would get, you know, they would drown or suffocate in quicksand. And I thought, I need to remember whenever I fall in quicksand that you don't try to struggle, you have to try to pull yourself out or get someone to pull you out. Quicksand also played a very small part in my life. Never seen quicksand. I mean, I've stood at the beach where the water goes and then, you know, pulls back out to the ocean and you sink a little bit. I think, is this it? Is this quicksand? It's not. Now, here's the thing with quicksand. It's extremely counterintuitive. You start to drown. You start to suffocate. So your natural tendency is to start swimming, is to try to get yourself above the sand. But the more you do that, the faster you sink. You're creating movement in air pockets where your body can go down quicker into the quicksand. You have to do the opposite of what you think. You have to do what's counterintuitive. You have to try to remain calm. You have to try to float. You have to yell for help or get, you know, grab onto a vine. There's always vines wherever there's quicksand. That's what you have to do. This text is extremely counterintuitive because our whole, our whole world would say, 
if you want to be thought an intelligent, enlightened, smart person, think like a non-Christian. And the Bible's gonna say that's foolishness. That's not actually wisdom. That's foolishness. Verses 19 through 20. For the wisdom of this world, he's gonna give the reason, is folly with God. Notice that reversal. For it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Look at this first phrase. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So here's where we are so far. The world says, this is smart and this is dumb. God says, this is smart and this is dumb. God and lost people have opposite views of things, okay? So we need to ask the question, when we see here that the wisdom of the world is dumb to God, it's foolish to God, what is wisdom to God? How does God himself define wisdom? And how does God himself define folly or foolishness? And the Bible's gonna tell us. This is what wisdom is biblically. Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The Bible's gonna say, here's what real wisdom is. Real wisdom starts with you recognizing there is one wiser than you. Real wisdom is a fear and a humility and a respect. You wanna be a wise person? Become a Christian. The first step is to bow the knee before God. That's where wisdom begins. That's the way the Bible's gonna define it. Yes and amen to philosophy. Yes and amen to science. Yes and amen to history. Yes and amen to being smart. But true wisdom in God's eyes starts with you having a fearful respect of God Almighty. However great or smart you think you are, you do, not ex- you do not exist apart from God. Now, if that's the definition of wisdom, how does the Bible then define folly or foolishness? Well, I wanna give you a great passage out of Proverbs 9. We have a whole sermon on Proverbs 9 if you want more on this. And it's gonna describe this woman folly, this woman foolishness. Now, that's not a sexist statement. Right before that, it describes wisdom as a woman. Why? Because Proverbs is written to young men, and what do young men care about? Women. So the example is lady wisdom, contrasted with lady folly, and here's how it describes lady folly. Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. The woman folly is loud. She's boisterous. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the high places of the town, calling out to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Normally, they're on the straight path. What does she say? Whoever is simple, meaning stupid, simple-minded, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That is a euphemism for adultery. Not to drink from your own cistern, your wife, but rather the stolen water, the hidden stuff. That's what makes it fun and seductive. And the text says, but he does not know that the dead are there, meaning in her house, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, of the grave, okay? So what the Bible's gonna say is true wisdom starts with fearing God. True foolishness is not where you're having fun. Don't think the word fool like a jester, right? There's a lot of that in church history that foolishness is to laugh and tell jokes. Foolishness in the Bible is to sin, okay? To to folly or to walk in foolishness in the Bible means you're walking in sin. If wisdom is obeying and fearing God, then folly is doing the opposite of that. It's this foolishness. So think back to the garden with Adam and Eve. There are two trees, okay? The tree of life, And what is the name of the other tree? Knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that a weird name for the second tree? Why isn't it the tree of life and the tree of death? Why isn't it the tree of life and the tree of sin? Why knowledge of good and evil? Adam and Eve already have knowledge of good and evil. They know they should obey God and eat this tree and not disobey God and eat this tree. So why is it called that? Here's what you need to understand. The issue is not Adam and Eve having knowledge. They already have knowledge. 
The issue is, by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they get to be the ones who decide what is good and evil. Whereas what they're commanded to do is the beginning of wisdom, fearing God. Eat of this tree, God will provide for you. You bow the knee, God is first. What they're doing by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is they're trying to say, I will be like God, which is what the serpent tells him. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't wanna submit to God. I don't wanna fear God. I will be like God. I will determine what's good and evil. I will choose what I get to do and what I get not to do. And so that is the issue. True wisdom is fearing God and true folly is trying to decide yourself what you get to, how you get to live your life. It's your body, your choice. It's your life, it's your money. You just live the way you want to. That is the very sin that Adam and Eve commit against God and all sin follows that pattern. Look at the next phrase. For it is written, he catches the wise and their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile or futile, okay? Now, what Paul is doing here is he is trying to say, this isn't just my idea. This is how God has always acted. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he gives these two quotes from the Old Testament to show that this is who God is. The first is from Job 5.13, where God exalts the lowly, but brings down the crafty, meaning sinfully crafty, people using their craftiness to hurt others. The second is a quote from Psalm 94.11, where human wisdom is seen as a fleeting breath. Okay? So we have this verse condemning those like the sophist. We talk about this in, in Greece. You had these professional rhetoricians, these professional speakers who would go around and whether what they said was true or not was irrelevant, they won people over by their eloquent tongues. Okay? And they're called the sophists. And so Paul quotes this text about people who manipulate others in so-called wisdom and he condemns it. But the second quote is a little bit different. The second quote there from Psalm 94.11 isn't the context of just worldly wisdom. In 94.11, it's showing even the best of human wisdom and human achievement is nothing to God. Let me summarize what I just said. This text is condemning not true wisdom. God's for wisdom. God is wisdom. Rather, this text is condemning two things. One, so-called wisdom, fake wisdom, the wisdom of the world that's not real wisdom. And two, even the greatness of all human knowledge is nothing compared to God. Do you understand that? that all the education of Oxford University, which is the greatest university in the world, is a coloring book to God. It's nothing. I'll give you a little example. My son just started playing four to five-year-old t-ball, okay? Now, I thought in playing t-ball that this was gonna be a bit more competitive, okay? I like baseball. Some would say I've even tried out for the Blue Jays as a pitcher. I don't know if you've heard that story, but I like baseball, and I thought it was gonna be competitive, And so I thought, oh man, my son's gonna get out there. Can he hit a slider? He's only five, I don't know. And guys, we get out there and it is so not competitive. The kids skip up to the plate. There's no skipping in baseball. (laughs) And then they swing four times and hit the tee because the tee's bigger than the ball. And then they hit the ball and they go chase their own ball, okay? (laughs) And then they run into each other and they cry. There's no crying in baseball, but there's a lot of crying in t-ball, okay? So I'm watching this game and I think, okay, I need to tone down my expectations. This is a comedy show, okay? And so I'm sitting there eating my nachos with jalapenos, which is amazing. And the coach says, hey, would you mind helping at second base? Now, I love helping with kids. I don't like dealing with their parents. And so I did not want to do that, okay? Because I'll just tell a kid like it is. So if they're like, my dad told me to put my arm this way, I'm like, well, your dad's an idiot. Do you want to hit the ball or not? So they asked me to go out to second base. As a second base coach, 
And so I'm standing there and I think, okay, I'm gonna help these kids out. So the kid runs over to second base and I say, good job, buddy, you did such a great job. Now, when the other kid hits it, you're gonna run to third base. You got it? He goes, yeah. And he's looking in the outfield. So he's looking this way. I'm like, hey, when this other kid hits it, you're gonna run to third base. You got that? Yep. Where do you think third base is? And he points to the outfield. I'm like, nope, right over there. See what you're standing on? There's one of those right over there. I want you to run over there and I want you to run real fast. And I'm trying to connect with the kid. I'm like, I want you to run real fast like a cheetah. And he goes, what's a cheetah? I was like, okay. And then he goes, look, I'm balancing. And I thought, okay, this is not what I expected it to be. The gap between me and four to five-year-old T-ball is significant. Now, think of the gap between human knowledge and God. At least in the analogy I just gave you, we're both humans. I'm older than them, but we're both humans. The gap between humans and God is infinite. Do you understand what infinite means? When you, whenever you've been at the beach, imagine all the pieces of sand along the seashore and then multiply that number by all the sand that's down in the ocean and then multiply that number by all the sand of all the beaches all across the world, then multiply that number by all of the sand in all of the oceans of the world, and you are not one step closer to infinity than when you began. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God. So the gap between God and us is not between t-ball and baseball. The gap is infinite. This is a text showing the utter holiness and wisdom of God compared to even at our best attempts, ridiculous human knowledge. God has always humbled humans who exalt themselves in worldly wisdom. This is true with Adam and Eve who get kicked out of the garden. This is true with the Tower of Babel where mankind says, I'm gonna build a tower to the heavens and I'm gonna make myself great. And God disperses them and confuses their language as judgment because only God is great. This is true of Pharaoh in Egypt who used to think of himself as a demigod. God destroys his nation, brings plagues and kills his son. God humbles the wisdom of the world. This is true with Goliath, who gets up and beats his chest and like, who, is, who can take me? And everybody's like, that kid over there with acne and a sling, I guess, can take you? This is true with a guy named Balaam. He's hired in the Old Testament by Moab, which is an enemy of Israel, to curse Israel. So he's like a wise man of their day. He's this sorcerer, witchcraft, weirdo witch doctor. And so they want them to put a curse on Israel and he sees Israel and instead God overwhelms him and he blesses them instead. This is true with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's walking across the top of his castle, boasting to himself, is this not great Babylon that I've made with my hands? And God makes him go insane. He's outside eating grass like an animal as a judgment from God. Jesus confounds the Pharisees with their man-made doctrines. In worldly wisdom, Pilate has Jesus crucified but doesn't know the implications of that. The apostles show their wisdom over the wisdom of the world with evil guys like Simon the sorcerer or Simon the magician. You see this kind of language constantly in the Bible like with the stoning of Stephen that people are amazed at the brilliance of what they're saying because it is godly and not worldly wisdom. Verse 21a, so here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion of that. So let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. Listen, you, I don't care what your mom told you, you are not awesome. You are not special. Humans are valuable to God. We're animals, but we're important animals. But humans are not awesome. God is awesome. We as humans are, we trip over our own feet. We choke on our own spit. No one chokes us, there's no food there. We start choking on our own spit. We have to go to the bathroom every day. 
That's not something that's great. Take your favorite celebrity, your favorite politician, whoever you think is the most handsome or the most beautiful, whoever you think is the smartest, and they have to go to the bathroom several times a day. Humans are not great. We have to sleep every day. We have to become unconscious for multiple hours to function. That is not a thing that is awesome. We get sick, we pull a muscle getting out of bed, which as I get older is a thing. I can go to the gym, no problem. But getting up in the morning, I will get a crick in my neck or something because sleeping's really hard. We hit curbs when we drive our cars and yet they still let us drive. Everyone here has hit a curb. You've curbed your car, everyone. And yet they let us get in these metal boxes and go 80 miles an hour down the road knowing that we can't even not hit curbs. Humans are not great. Let no one boast in man. We forget people's names we just met. So I'm terrible at this because I'm a pastor. So as soon as I say, hi, I'm Zach, I go deaf and I don't hear what your name is. So I'll meet someone new and Jeff will come up and he'll be like, hey, did you meet them? I was like, yeah. He's like, what's their name? And I'm like, chard? And he's like, that's not a human name. That's not a name. Don't we just make up words? We forget. We think we're awesome because we have technology. Humans are great because we make an iPhone. And then we drop it in the toilet. So let no one boast in men. Humans are not great. God is great. The reason Paul is saying this is that there's no reason, hear me, for today or for the Corinthians, to exalt self and divide over who you think your favorite celebrity pastor is because that's just all boasting in men. You're missing the point. You're ignoring the one thing you should boast in God and instead boasting in men. Now, the first part of this text that we've just read is profound, but it's pretty easy to understand. The next part gets a little bit trickier, but that's why you guys here at Parkway, because we teach you the good stuff. Look at verses 21b, that's the second half of 21, through 22, it says this. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, let me pause there. Cephas is just another name for the apostle Peter, okay? His name, Peter, in Greek is Petros, which means rock, But he also would have had a Jewish name, an Aramaic name, Kepha, which is where we get Cephas, which also means rock. So that's just like his nickname. He's like Dwayne Johnson, right? It's like Apostle the Rock Peter or whatever it is. That's who that is. So when you see Cephas, just realize that's Peter. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. What on earth does this mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the kind of Kenneth Copeland name it and claim it, everything belongs to you. That's not the point. Three things of what this text means, okay? First of all, it means this. The Corinthians don't need to divide over who their favorite teacher is because all those teachers belong to the church corporate, okay? So think back to 1 Corinthians 1.12. We're gonna put it on the screen. This is what the Corinthians are doing. They're not being unified. They're having division by attaching themselves to their favorite politician, their favorite celebrity pastor, causing division in the church. And here's what he says. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. What they're saying is, yeah, we're all Christians, but I'm varsity. You're junior varsity. I'm the one who really gets it. And so Paul is correcting that, and he's saying, no, you don't get to say, I belong to Paul. Rather, all things belong to all of you. Paul and Peter and Apollos, etc., belong to the whole church. That's his first point. Okay? So that's what it means in the first point. All things are yours. What are those all things? The teachers that God has assigned, these ministers of the church belong to the church. So you can't divide over those things. That's his first point. Now the second part gets a little trickier because he says this, or the world 
or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. Why does he throw that in the list? Why didn't he just say, stop dividing? Because all these guys belong to the church. Why does he continue with this strange list? Let me tell you why, okay? These things that are mentioned here have to do with the stresses of life or what New Testament scholar Gordon Fee calls the tyrannies of existence. And these are things that have a tendency to steal our joy, take our eyes off of Christ and make us turn to ourselves. Let me say that again. These things in this list, the world, life, death, present, future, etc., those are stresses of this life or what are known as tyrannies of existence which are no longer a concern for us as believers. We don't have to worry about the future. We don't have to worry about death. We know Christ. But when we worry about these things, they steal our joy, they take our eyes off of Christ, and they make us turn to ourselves instead of God and therefore cause division in the church, okay? These are the same things, by the way, that are mentioned in Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, there it is, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, there's present and future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that's the world, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul is saying is part of your division comes from dividing between these different guys. The other part of your division comes with instead of realizing that everything is yours in Christ, that everything is going to be okay. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear the future. You don't have to fear the world. These are not a concern for believers. Instead, when you forget that, you start exalting self and causing division because you're trying to protect yourself from these things you're afraid of, okay? I was listening to an interesting clip that Jared Lawson sent me. There was an interview where some guys from the Gospel Coalition was interviewing a guy from South America who is both a doctor, like a medical doctor, and a pastor, okay? And so they were asking him about COVID-19. They say, hey, you're a pastor, so you're having to deal with this in the congregation, and you're a medical doctor. What has most surprised you about this virus? And you know what the doctor said? He said what most surprised him is that most Christians had the same fear of death as the rest of the lost unbelieving world. That Christians were locking down for months and months and months and as the doctor said, forgetting about the resurrection. Forgetting that God has ordained our days. And he said it was just so shocking. Not cautions, he was pro-caution. We should take cautions. The, the, The virus is not a hoax, okay? It's not a conspiracy theory. But he was so concerned because the fear in so many Christians' hearts was the same as lost people. They were afraid of the future, afraid of the world, afraid of death. And this text is saying, all things are yours. You don't, these are not a concern for you anymore. These are not a concern for you anymore. And the third thing that this text means, verses 21b through 22 is this. The reason the Corinthians don't need to exalt themselves or divide over who their favorite church leader is is because Christians already get to inherit the world. So what's going on in Corinth is people are trying to exalt themselves. I want to be great. I want to have wealth. I want to be glorified. I want to have wisdom. And the people today in our culture, I want to be great. I want to be influential. I want to have wealth. I want to be a somebody. And the Bible says you'll get all those things, just not now. Christians get to inherit the world because Christ inherits the world and we're in Christ. One day, money will not be an issue. One day, health will not be an issue. One day, all the sin that plagues you will not be an issue. God will glorify you. Things will be good for you in eternity. What you're really wanting, you're going to get. You just don't get it this side of eternity. And so all these things belong to you. You don't need to divide over money and status and fame because one day everyone will know everybody in heaven. Christ is the one who is famous and the good things we get, we get from him. So there's this interesting irony in the Christian life, which is this. On the one hand, we own nothing. 
On the one hand, we are slaves to everybody. We serve everyone. We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We help those in need. We're we're servants. We owe nothing. But on the other hand, because we're Christians and we're in Christ, we have freedom and we're not enslaved to anything. And we own everything because it belongs to Christ and it belongs to Christ's people. This is why the Bible says that blessed are the meek for they shall what? Inherit the earth, right? So it belongs to us. So in the words of Martin Luther, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. Both are true at the same time. Now let's look at this last phrase here. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's, okay? By by the way, where it says God's there, it means the Father. Jesus is fully and truly God. Specifically there, it's meaning the Father. Now, this text is a little bit tricky because in Greek, it's very ambiguous. It literally says, and you of Christ and Christ of God, okay? And actually, the you there is not a singular, it's a plural. Or as we would say in Texas, y'all. And y'all of Christ and Christ of God. By the way, side note, this is why I think Texas is better than other states, we have a way to refer to the second person plural. Other places have to use more than one word. You guys, even the Queen's English in England can't do it as well as we can. So as thus saith God in the Bible, and y'all of Christ and Christ of God. Okay, now what does that mean? First of all, he's not creating a hierarchy here. Remember, what makes the members of the Trinity different is not vertical, it's horizontal. The Father is not better than the Son or the Spirit in any way at all. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-majesty, co-worship. So this is not saying like God's at the top and then the son's like junior varsity and then there's the apostles and then the church. That's not the point. What Paul is doing with this text is he's drawing the unity of the church instead of their division. Think back to that quote from 1 Corinthians 1.12. In fact, can we put it back on the screen? 1 Corinthians 1.12. I should have put it in the notes. Thank you, sorry about that. What I mean is that each one of you says I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. What's that last one? or I follow Christ. You even have people dividing over saying, yeah, you're saying you're a Christian, I'm really the only one who knows Jesus. And so Paul is even using that slogan against them. He's trying to say, whether it's the apostles, whether it's Christ, whether it's the church, whether it's the world, it doesn't matter, it all belongs to God and therefore it all belongs to you, so stop having division. That's his point, that's his point, okay? It's simply meaning to draw the unity of the church under God, it's not meaning to create some sort of weird hierarchy. So. I wanna end by saying something pastoral. Not like anything else I've been saying is pastoral. I've just been (laughs) making fun of culture and making jokes. Where does division come from in a church? Where does division come from in a church, okay? At the end of the day, where it comes from is pride. When you don't realize that Jesus is enough, when you don't realize that Jesus is better, what you have to do is you have to start trying to make yourself great so you can feel good about yourself. When you don't realize that God loves you, when you don't realize that Jesus is better than all your desires, what you have to do is you have to try to fill that void with something. And maybe you try to fill it by making yourself a somebody in the church, talk about how great you are and all the Bible studies you've led and all of that. Maybe you try to make yourself great by having a ton of money. Maybe you try to make yourself great by being seen as enlightened by lost people and the unbelieving world. But all of that comes from a deeper spiritual root. Christians don't have a division problem. We have an idolatry problem. What we do is we put something at the center of our lives. We put something on the throne of our hearts that's not Jesus. And because that thing doesn't satisfy, it will always cause division. 
If you don't realize that God loves you and that Jesus is enough, that he satisfies, you will try to fill that void in your heart with something and that something, one, will not satisfy, two, will cause division with other people and three, will be an attempt to exalt self. It'll be an attempt to exalt self. It's not that you'll never be exalted. It's that if you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself and let God exalt you. So I wanna read some lines from a song we're about to sing after communion called Jesus is Better because that's really the problem the Corinthians have. Why are they dividing over these anxieties of life? Why are they dividing over these teachers? Why are they doing all of that? At the end of the day, they just don't think that Jesus is better than all the things they're wanting. It says this, in all my sorrows, Jesus is better. When I'm sad, when I'm depressed, the only thing that actually can satisfy is Jesus. Make my heart believe, because our hearts don't believe this. We're asking God to do something we cannot do. We cannot conjure up belief. In every victory, Jesus is better. Better than the promotion, better than the PhD, better than starting a new business, better than getting married. Make my heart believe. Then any comfort, that thing you run to at the end of a difficult day to try to make yourself feel better, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than all riches, all the money, all the houses, all the boats, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our souls declaring Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And our song eternal, Jesus is better make my heart believe. Let's pray as we transition into a time of communion. Dear God, I thank you for this text. I pray that you would uh, change our hearts, conform our hearts and our minds around this text. We so badly want to be great in the world's eyes. We want people to think we're somebodies, but we don't have to do that because you've sent Christ and Christ is that somebody, the one who is truly God and truly man. And so we thank you for that. I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know Jesus, that today would be their spiritual birthday, that maybe for the first time in their life, all the pain and all the frustration and all the condemnation they feel, they might just give to Jesus and ask you to save them. They don't have to do anything. It's a free gift. We can't earn it. You offer a free pardon to anybody but who will but, who will but repent. So we thank you. Help us, help our heart believe these things. Let us not be divisive over leaders. Let us not be divisive over these tyrannies of existence and stresses of life because you've promised us all things in Christ. Help us be patient as we wait for those things. Amen.